0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Martin Miller on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Foundations of Modern Terrorism, State, Society, and the Dynamics of Political Violence. As someone who studied Russian history for many years, and I guess still studies it, I was... uh, always under the rather chauvinistic opinion that Russians invented modern terrorism. Um, I wasn't entirely right, uh, but as Martin points out in the book, they contributed mightily to it in the 19th century into what we know as modern terrorism. And So I'll be really interested to hear Martin talk about that because he's contextualized this Russian terrorism of the 19th century that I knew a lot about into a much broader perspective. And so that's very interesting for me, and I'm sure you'll find the rest of the discussion interesting as well. So Martin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good uh, to
0: hear from you, more Marshall. Good. So, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: I began, uh, I did my graduate work at the University of Chicago and that's really where I became interested in things Russian. Um, I was, um, I think, a number of of, of us, that is to say, of uh, people who became my cohort at the University of Chicago's graduate students, um, fell under the influence of uh, a very prominent professor, Leopold Haimson, whose um, work was quite uh, extraordinary, at least its impact was at the time for, for many of us. I gradually moved into uh, becoming increasingly interested in um, Russian anarchism, and that grew out of a master's thesis I'd done in European history, uh, in which I discovered that um, Richard Wagner, the, great German composer who was very controversial, was in a jail cell with Mikhail Bakunin in, his <laughs> in 1848, which uh, led me to become much more interested in Bakunin than in uh, Wagner himself. And so I began to switch from European history over to Russian, and that's when I took Keynes's course, and that sealed it. I did my first um, my dis- dissertation in my first book on um, the anarchist Peter Kropotkin uh, after a year's stay in Moscow which is an interesting story in itself um, for anyone who's been through the Cold War era. And then um, I've, I've just moved on um, into deeper into various aspects of um, Russian history. I did um, a book on the influence of psychoanalysis in Russia, which was also a, an interesting discovery to have made. I guess the um, the interest in this book, which um, is a kind of outgrowth of the original work that I did way back with uh, the Karpukian biography which was my my first book um I I want to mention also that I did another book on Russian emigres in western Europe and one of the things that I was puzzled by was the um extraordinary impact that they had abroad um, mm-hmm. as political figures and people who really refused to to give up their language to give up their um their really what they considered their identity all of which um, led me deeper into this um, very secretive world of um, political opposition in Russia. And the um, so long story short is, is that after a number of, of monographic studies, I decided to do a, a large comparative um, uh, historical study, is something that was quite um, unlike anything I've done before, since all the previous books were monographic studies. This book is... Um, Uh, a much broader ambitious effort so we can talk about that a little bit too
0: Mm -hmm. and so you decided to move away from the monograph and write something that uh, well I mean I guess we we can just put it plainly and say has a certain amount of relevance today a lot of relevance
1: yes it does and that's a good point um, uh, to mention because um, I started, the the interest in this particular subject came out of a conference that I was invited to way back in the early 90s um, which was uh, an international conference that was about terrorism's um, around the world mostly looked at from below and I was asked to do a paper um, on Russia and Europe mainly Western Europe because uh, another colleague had been uh, focusing on Russia proper and um, I must say that uh, I was so interested in it that I decided to start a, a, a course here at Duke uh, when I returned and uh, I offered it as a seminar through the early 90s and very few students were interested, and very few people came. After 9 11, everything changed. Yeah. Um, hundreds came. It was uh, quite a remarkable change. But I, I did, uh, I have to say that I did get interested in the subject and was involved in trying to figure out this whole phenomenon long before um, the world of nine eleven 11 came upon us.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting in and of itself because I sort of suspected that the book was a response to. Uh Nine Eleven, at least in part, but, I mean, it's interesting to know that you were working on it long before then. It's not as if terrorism wasn't in the news prior to uh nine eleven. I mean, it's more or less a permanent facet of modern political life, I guess I would I say. So. Yeah, I think so, too. So, actually, let's begin talking about the book. Uh, you begin the story of terrorism, modern terrorism, in the pre-modern era, and... Um, really with the Greeks, which is a good place to start, and then you talk a little bit about the Romans and their um, problem with terrorists. Of course, they didn't call them that, but can you talk a little bit about the pre-modern era and what it contributed to modern terrorism? Yeah, I felt it, um, I really felt it
1: more than an obligation. I really felt it. it, it really wouldn't be the proper way to, to develop the analytical narrative without some attention to the, um, what we refer to as the pre-modern period. And I really have, um, it is not only the the very ancient part of the story, but I think what really becomes important is the aftermath and the period in which um, religion had become so predominant in Western Europe, and particularly when Catholicism was a monopoly uh, in terms of religion. Questions that were asked were, uh, for centuries, as we all know, answered in, in one form or another in religious uh, terminologies. And so I, I sort of was fascinated when I uncovered a... a a long discourse that went on for centuries, um, which uh, I refer to in the in the first chapter of the book as the tyrannicide debate, which were arguments uh, made by uh, largely religious scholars, some of whom were extremely prominent, many others uh, I certainly had not heard of until I came across their um, their treatises, which were attempts to describe, um, in Aristotelian terms, and that's why it goes back really to the Greeks, what kinds of governments are... Good for the people under whom they will, for whom, in whose interest they are, are supposed to be willing and, and if they're assessed to be um, governments that are acting not in the interests of government, uh, sorry, if the, if the governments are not acting in the interests of the people, uh, what actions are left for us to take? And many of these theorists, uh, surprisingly, and after agonizing debates in these treatises where they go back and forth about the just and unjust come to the conclusion that um, even God would sanction the um, removal by violence if necessary of this uh, unjust ruler from power, from authority. So, that led me to the question which I think dominates um, the book uh, in terms of trying to figure out what motivates people who resort to violence in politics, and that is the question of political legitimacy. Mm -hmm. That's about uh, the, the the really the core that is the core of the story and the I think the knowledge that we get from the pre-modern period about this problem of political violence is that it has been going on for centuries, except under uh, under various names and under guises, so that at times it may have even appeared to be unrecognizable to us uh, in the modern period.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, gu- I guess one thing I was interested to. Um, see in the book is a, is a distinction between the pre-modern and the modern period, uh, and you break roughly at the French Revolution, and that is in the pre-modern period, uh, now again we're covering a lot of territory with that term, and there are lots right. of different pre-modern periods, I suppose, in different parts of the world, but the question was really whether the authority should be changed. It wasn't really a question about what kind of authority there should be, so it was a question of killing Caesar, not getting rid of what was really authoritarianism. Um, In the case of much of this debate, there wasn't a debate over whether one should be a communist, capitalist, Democrat, Republican, um, any of this business. It was a question usually of monarchy and whether to get rid of the monarch. Am I right Right. about that? That's correct. Yeah. So there wasn't this plurality of different political ideologies fighting it out. Um, Now, one interesting case that you do mention where there is a sort of difference like this is the the Zealots and the Romans. The Zealots were, uh, were they terrorists?
1: Well, they are considered to be the, the
0: very first of what I consider the, to be the insurgent ver, variety of terrorists. Yes. Yeah. But they were religiously inspired, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So again, that's another distinction. Well, I mean, it, it, we see some of it in the early modern period, not so much in the modern period, but we see some of it in the early modern period where the the, uh, the zealots were interested in a kind of, um, I guess we would call it religious freedom
1: yeah, um, yeah. I, I think they're the earliest form of what later was referred to as national liberation fronts
0: mhm mhm exactly, but you know, and that's a crucial distinction that we need to bear in mind when we go forward to talk about early modern and i think modern um, terrorism. you do a good job of that so let's go forward to the um the early modern period and, and this is my favorite period because it's when everything really starts to change now, on a kind of simple gloss, uh, and as somebody who knows a little bit about early modern European history. There was lots of political violence, and some of it looked purely terroristic to me. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, in fact, um, I, I, I certainly um, tried to, um, to to deal with that um, in, in that first chapter. I think that the, um, the, I mean, we always look at it as a kind of transition when we move past the French Revolution, but in fact, what I'm trying to show here is there's a huge amount of continuity That much of the groundwork and structure and indeed, even the um, antagonisms were already developed by the time of the French Revolution in that earlier period when when Catholicism and monarchies were monopolies, um, by and large. Uh, the notions of democratic republics were um, nothing more than utopian fantasies. Now, um, there were many examples of this, but what I'm trying to argue in the book, um, and, and if there's a model at work here, this would be the place where it congeals, and that is that there's a... Uh, a combination of um of an uh what I'm gonna refer to as entangled terrorisms. That is to say on the one hand there's the insurgency from below but on the other hand there's the um the force from above. The state, um in its pre modern form is acting out a certain kind of role that makes possible the insurgency from below and the the reverse can be said about the uh, in the other direction. They need each other is what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So the battle's over whether it's going to be a, a territory controlled by Protestantism or Catholicism, or whether or who's a heathen and, and who's to be um, repressed, uh, who's accepted, who's in, who's out, etc., etc. All of that is already well structured in this religious era.
0: hmm mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, one thing I liked about the book is it's just that point that is that you 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 say, and I think correctly, that uh, in the pre-modern period, governments themselves. Uh, were quite aware of the utility of, of terrorizing the population in order to make it submissive. And we see a lot of that in early modern Europe. I mean, from kind of, kind of Cromwell in, in, um, in Ireland to uh, the Huguenots to, and then to go to Eastern Europe. I mean, you have uh, the Russians putting down various rebellions that you know very well, and they do so right. in a kind of terroristic fashion. They, they, they murder people willy-nilly and in very public ways. Um, so this seemed to be kind of a, a tool of government.
1: It is, and it's as obvious as it is. It's remarkable how um, reluctant we have always been, and why I say we—I mean the whole scholarly community—to really call this terrorism, mm-hmm. which I am trying to argue is exactly what it is.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one—we can talk about this for just a second before we move on to really the meat of the argument, which is the French Revolution and everything afterwards. Uh, the, the definition of terrorism, and and um, you know, the, the one that I was. Uh, well, I, I was told, I didn't really thought about it until somebody, this is not even a few years ago, um, told me that the definition of terrorism is the use of, a, of, of um, a military means to change uh, the policy of an existing government without defeating that government. So in other words, it's the sort of, um, it's the uh, IRA model. That is, you blow up a few places in Belfast and then maybe the British government will change its tune. But that that doesn't seem to cover the entire thing to me, right? Well, that's always what I
1: what I my perspective on this is that that's part of the story, or sometimes maybe half of the story, or a little more. But 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 it is not the story. Governments, in other words, um, are in deeply involved in whatever the whatever the violence of the moment is. Whatever the terrorism is, whether it's a pre-modern religious format or whether it's um, a post-French Revolution or a more secular-oriented uh, version, the Irish case, by the way, is depends where, what century one is talking about. But mm-hmm. um, that's a brilliant example, really, of um, exactly what I'm talking about because everybody's involved. The British are involved in the most violent ways. The insurgency and divides itself between Catholics and Protestants eventually and continues to um, exact its violent impact on the society as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, One can't do without the other, that's the point They, have, they need each other
0: Right, exactly, and, and I think the, 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 the commonality here is that the, the, the use of violence is not to completely defeat your um, enemy It is to persuade them that what they are doing is wrong And they have to stop In other words, All you're right. not going to meet them on the field, field of battle and defeat them you're going to persuade them by means of a really horrific violence that they can't go on in the way they have gone on. Make the make it cost too much for them. Would that be correct? Make it cost too much for them, yes. But there's another degree here,
1: another important um, notion, which uh, emerges more in the violent period, admittedly, at least more recognizably so. But I think that people who are engaged in using violence to achieve political objectives, which is, um, for me at least, what terrorism's central focus is really all about, involves um a, a very secretive way of life which takes you out of the um the world that you and I live in and involves in some cases um, more cases than we sometimes might want to imagine um a very imaginative kind of uh, fantasy thinking where you really believe that you can do, do all those other things too that you just mentioned
0: mm-hmm. you really
1: can take the, take the whole place out
0: mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. and and proclaim some kind of victory in a new age.
0: Yeah. Well, so so this brings us right to the kind of crux of the the book and its thesis. And that is that things really change in the French Revolution because, well, why don't you tell the story? Why does uh, uh, terrorism assume a very different form? And really, it's sort of modern form during and after the French Revolution. Right. I I, I do think that um, one of the um, as uh, as common as it is to, to
1: historicize the French Revolution as the modern era. Um, there's nothing new about that, but what I'm trying to show here is that the question of uh, legitimacy um, and who's involved in the political process changes uh, unalterably from that moment on. And the simplest way, I think, of explaining it is that um, I once did um, a search, in uh, the only languages I can really deal with properly are French, uh, German, and Russian. And what I found was that the um, word legitimacy before the eighteenth century was um, in, to the extent it was, it appears in dictionaries at all well, uh, or anthologies of any kind, was used in the singular and was capitalized after the French Revolution, nineteenth century dictionaries and encyclopedias eventually used the term in the plural in, and use a small L. That was so telling to me to yeah. just find that out because it showed me that um, that's where the monopoly ends. But now, starting with the French Revolution, we have a plethora of political parties. Uh, which existed in the English Revolution earlier as well, but not in the same way. They become permanent fixtures as part of the political process precisely because a democratic republic is being established. What that means is that you and I have as much right to assert our political perspective as anybody else does. It isn't just the king and his advisors who make the decisions for us, or the wise theologians who have always told us what's good and what's evil. We matter now in ways that um, had never been the case before. And we can form political parties and we can get very angry um, and begin to take action accordingly, which is now legitimate to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a very simple way of trying to explain what it looks like from the ground.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it is a very interesting thing that that space opens up. I mean, it was definitely the case. I, I always tell my students that the default uh, form of government the one that everyone thought of and really couldn't think of another one was monarchy at least in right. the european tradition that was it when people said government if they said the word government what they meant was monarchy and monarchy was it Exactly, it really wasn't anything else there, there was no question that the next government would be some form of monarchy it might mask kind of oligarchy if you want to be sophisticated but it was monarchy that the thing would be run by a guy and, and he would have uh, his fellows, and they would be duly deputized, and they would run the place. Right. After yeah. the French Revolution, that changes dramatically. Of, of emails, but yeah. yeah, sure, absolutely. But after, after the French Revolution, that just changes dramatically. Um, when basically people start to experiment with different forms of government, right. and, and they begin to think that it is their right to do so. This is a huge watershed um, in, in, in really world history. Uh, and the variety of political pers- perspectives at
1: that point, uh, I just find it mind blowing to mm-hmm. see what they came up with in that short space of time.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, uh, well, it's uh, a <laughs> it's, it's it's a sort of it's sort of a sad story in many ways. Um, we we investigated the space and found out that most of it was not very hospitable. The um, <laughs> it was not very hospitable terrain. So uh, it's at this point really that you see, and this touches on what you just said you see terrorism become a kind of, and this is especially the case in, in, in Russia, terrorism become kind of a way of life. That is, there, there are sort of little worlds that begin to appear in opposition to whatever X is, in which right. they're sort of hermetically seen and self-supporting and are toxic, and then basically their mission is to go and, uh, well, blow people up or shoot them. Again, keeping in mind that
1: we're talking about both governments and societies at work doing this. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about the Russian case? How does it begin? You know, again, I said in the sort of, uh, in sort of the introduction that my my impression was that Russians invented this thing, uh, the bomb throwing anarchist and all that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of Russian terrorism on both sides of the fence? That is, the state and the people who were terrorizing the state.
1: Right. Well, in the, I mean, you know, the pre-modern period a lot better than I do, um, and so you know that story quite well. But um, I, I think the obvious part of it, at least, is that. For most of the centuries before, let's say the 19th, uh, when things become very different, the the violence was mostly court centered or peasant driven. Uh, there, there really is very little in between. There, there were the great peasant rebellions in Russia prior to the 19th century um, until the end of the, until the Pukachev, which was the, the last. Mm-hmm. And as you also know, and most um, people who certainly have studied Russian history are well familiar with the, the palace coups, as they're um, nicely referred to, uh, with the dominant, with the other version of, 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 the, of the political violence uh, that took place. But, but again, the, the, the French Revolutionary Era has its impact in Russia as well, when I think the, the, the beginning point for me is um, the returning military figures after having bivouac in Paris following the defeat of Napoleon, all of whom, of course, knew fluent French from their aristocratic backgrounds, uh, came back with (laughs) suitcases full of forbidden books um, about Robespierre and um, the uh, the reign of terror, and the whole notion of a democratic republic, all of which was banned and it certainly wasn't unthinkable, but it was unreadable and certainly nothing that could be made public. And so these groups turned into secret organizations, which leads to the 1825 on um, December's rebellion, and that, that inaugurates a, a, a sea change. The, one of the extraordinary things about that 1825 moment is uh, what didn't happen but uh, was planned to, and that is um, Pablo Castiel, the leader of the Southern Society of, of the two Decemberist organizations, had planned um, what he called the Cadu Gaut- uh, this was like a uh, kind of a. I don't know. Maybe you could see them as uh, an updated version of uh, Ivan the Terrible's uh, prichniki, whose purpose was to literally assassinate the entire Romanov family uh, to leave no one alive in order to ensure that there would be uh, no possibility of returning to the Tsarist monarchical um, regime. That never happened because they were caught before the plan was was ever to be put in motion. But it, it suggests two of the things I'm talking about. One is the, now the possibility of many legitimacies, not one, and the other, the the uh, secrecy and utopian thinking involved uh, in, in planning what was in fact an impossible venture that was obviously doomed to fail as well. So that's the beginning um, of what becomes the terrorism um, in Russia. And again, the, the way that I learned it and you learned it and, and uh, most of us know is that what we're really looking for is the emergence of People's Will, not only Ovolia in Mm -hmm. 1878, which uh, is often referred to as the first professional terrorist organization, which it is from below. There was nothing like it in the Western world until that time. But there was the third section, there was a uh, repressive police force. And the thing that people seem not to want to pay attention to, even though everybody knows this, is that governments, and the Russian government certainly was um, a participant in this statistic, have been responsible for the the, um, the killing, political murders of citizens who they see as um, threats to their legitimacy in numbers that are exponentially larger than all of the insurgent terrorist deaths, caused deaths um, taken together. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. killed, in other words, far more efficiently and um, more numerously than have insurgencies. But we still go back and look at the underground. All the time, and that 's our definition of terrorism so i 'm trying to work my way into it, a new way of thinking about it, um, and russia's a great place of course to, to, to do that uh, as a
0: laboratory mm-hmm. well I mean here in Russia, uh, roughly uh, around eighteen fifty we see the the formation of these these two you know, it takes uh, two to tango. We see the, the formation of these two groups. One is a secret police that is ferreting out a kind of professional revolutionary organization that uses terror. And the other is the professional revolutionary organization. And they exist in kind of tandem. Um, and this, you know, this is very, this is common coin in the 20th century. Every state has a secret police of, of some sort. We may might not call it that. And there are often oppositional groups that are in the underground, um, which is a telling phrase in and of itself, uh, right. that are that are bent on um Uh, avoiding the secret police and basically killing the political elite in the name of some uh, new form of of government however utopian that might be and in the russian case this plays out very early and provides a kind of model for everyone else and you mentioned uh, uh uh the people's will i mean they could you talk a little bit about them because they really they really were the kind of act underground uh sort of from below political terrorist organization i mean they didn't I, I, I don't know, but they didn't really have to recruit people. People came to them and, you know, it wasn't as if they were, you know, it, it wasn't as if they were, um, you know, a, a kind of organization that went out and gathered people. I mean, they were just sort of a part of Russian culture for a while.
1: Right. There's a there, there's a, a whole evolution from the period that you mentioned. Um, the, the 1850s, uh, there's only glimmers. By the 1860s, though, we know, that there's um, a kind of, uh, I call it the insurgency of the word. In other words, journals um, become a place of of dissent by uh, creating a kind of Esapian language where you you, you try and communicate to the larger uh, educated society messages of dissent and subversion against the regime that are acceptable to a very rigid censorship. And the, the products of that period are, are truly um, extraordinary. It's referred to often as um, the period of nihilism and of uh, Russian uh, revolutionary movements. But that's the background, because uh, what begins um, as a kind of um, sabotaging by using the word becomes uh, an active uh, cause of um, sabotage by, by, by the deed. Mm-hmm. So by the time it gets to, um, to 1878, um, when people's will forms, are really uh, two-and-a-half generations of, um, of, well, anger. Um, mm-hmm. People were really uh, questioning the the nature of this oppressive government and its police. And I've seen the archives, and many historians have um, the records of the, of the police, which are kept in skillfully. Um, there 's there's no denying of the the reign of terror that the police had established long before all of this even began, so yes, they didn't uh, people who didn 't need a recruiting office anywhere. Mm-mm. People did come to them willingly, but many of the people who came to them were either um, people who had already tried to go out to peasant villages and uh, imagine themselves into the life of uh, a rural population in whose name they were protesting, but who many of whom had never even met that alone talked to mm-hmm. And um, in some cases, the older brother or sister had participated, and the next generation um, becomes involved in taking it one step further when all that's broken up. You can't do it by journal, and you can't do it by um, sort of marshmallow roasting around the campfire in the villages of the peasants. Then you turn to um, one last resort, just as the Tyrannicide treatises had argued for centuries before.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, one of the... a historical theorist that I like says that, you know, basically that it, it, one of the hallmarks of a regime that is about to collapse is a division among the elite. That is the ruling class. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we see that in Russia. We also see that in the Irish case. We see that basically in the Saudi Arabian case today. And that is there's some section of the elite that uh, uh, likes things the way they are. But there's another section of the elite that is willing to countenance a lot of criticism and criticism that borders on the advocacy of terrorism. And this is definitely the case in Russia is that, I mean, you look at... Um, you look at much of what was written in the highbrow press there, and it says basically that czarism, as it was, was illegitimate. I mean, this is similar in the, I like guess I say, the Irish case in the case of Saudi Arabia today. And you need those elites sort of to support uh, this sort of popular movement. And you see it in Russian plays and things, you know, it's in Fathers and Sons, stuff like that, uh, where there are these kind of wacky, I mean, they appear to us wacky, they're actually very dangerous. Um, sort for proto-terrorists. They're people that are really disaffected, believe in what they believe and will eventually throw a bomb, if that's what it takes. Right. Uh, and they're constantly being ferreted out by this other group, that is the secret police, that is after them. And it becomes kind of a, as I say, you know, it's it's a stable part of Russian culture all the way to 1917. And it's a stable part, it was a stable part of Irish culture for a long time, and I believe it's a stable part of Saudi Arabian culture today. It was a stable part of German culture in the 60s. Uh, you know, that there was just, there was this disaffected group that had um so a certain kind of a legitimacy from uh, a a section of the elite that thought that things uh, were not as they should be and then there's the bomb throwing that occurs so yeah, that's interesting right. now uh, let, let's um let's let's move on a little bit um to uh, 1917 itself and here we have an interesting moment in Russia again where we see the return of um g- you know government terrorism per se not like the Reign of Terror, and then in the Russian case, in the Bolshevik case, um, they called it, uh, you know, um, the the Red Red Terror. Can you uh-huh. talk a little bit about that? Right. So um, uh, another sort
1: of interesting, um, uh, and again, much of what I have in the book is uh, after I, I think about it. I don't know if it seems so obvious, I keep asking, well, how come everybody else didn't figure this out too? It's nothing complicated about it. One of the things that's extraordinary about the Russian case. Um, which is a little bit unusual in most of these sort of revolutionary transitional situations, is that almost the entirety of the people who became um, the officialdom in 19... now we're talking about the second of the two revolutions after Mm -hmm. October in 1917, were people who had little, um, in some cases, very little experience with regard to not only political authority, but with regard to Russia itself. What I mean is, is that the largest number of people came either from prison camps in the country, where they certainly weren't involved in political education, uh, or they came from, and most of them did, came abroad. The, almost the entire Bolshevik leadership uh, had not been in Russia for 10, 15, in some cases 20 years. It's not you know, usually looked at, but it's just an obvious fact. Yep. What all this means is that these are people who are coming back with fantastic ideas that were generated either in the conditions of a prison camp and i don't think we need to talk a lot about what what that world was like or um in the uh illusory world of alleged freedoms in western europe by comparison they seemed rather wild to these russian emigres so they they come back um and yes trotsky institutes um almost immediately proclaiming for the first time since Robespierre that the government is in fact a terrorist government and needs to be in order to
0: stay in power. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that is remarkable. What does the Bolshevik government do? I mean, actually, how do they prosecute this terror? Trials,
1: Trials, uh, executions, shootings, um, Mm -hmm. all the usual arsenals of states um, that that have been done by states and governments um, forever. The Bolsheviks, um, if if there's anything uh, unique about this, and I don't think there really is, it's just that there's an awfully lot of it going on within a very condensed period of time. And again, my point about all that is, uh, which is not to, for a moment, justify the violence, um, which I would not want any reader of my book to to think of for a second. The point of it is is that this is a leadership that comes to power illegally by seizing it. It Mm -hmm. isn't uh, certainly what Aristotle would have considered uh, an unjust regime. Uh, it was a usurpation of power, an, an acquisition of power through illegal means. So when you do that, you have to justify and create a whole form of political legitimacy, which in the Bolsheviks' case, there was no precedent to go to since they had abandoned all previous forms of political legitimacy themselves. Mm-hmm. Sovereignty was out, modern monarchical authority and divine right of kings was obviously out. And so they, they literally... live by invention from day to day. Mm -hmm. and What that involves is an enormous insecurity that leads to the violence. Mm
0: -hmm. And we see similar sorts of things happen in Italy and then in Germany. Can you talk a little bit about those, especially fascist governments?
1: Well, again, um, one of the things I'm trying to do here is create a model that has enormous um, space for Distinctions that take place in cultures and governments from one place to another. And yes, the Italian and German cases have to be looked at uh, quite separately. Um, what the Italian case uh, shares with the Russian case in the aftermath of the Great War, as it was once known, is that um, Mussolini came to power in Italy, much in the way that Lenin did. And in fact, both of them were responsible for creating the world's first one party states. Um, Lenin beat Mussolini out by some months. Um, and Hitler's version of it, of course, comes um, only after that. All these governments, every the, the three of them, um, all come to power in similar ways. Now, ironically, the, the uh, German case is, is a little more complicated because Hitler, or at least his party, was, um, they won the election. They they did not seize power in quite the same way. What happened in the aftermath of that uh, election was, was where the story begins to resemble the Russian and Italian cases.
0: How's the government story? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, but but the Germans definitely used uh, terror uh, after they, I mean, people call it the seizure of power. I guess it was a seizure of power. They were elected and then seized power. But then they used terror thereafter to banish their opponents. Absolutely. And that's a long German story that goes way back to the uh, the World War. Well, let's, Um, let's, um, I I don't want to accept... you know people talk about uh, American exceptionalism I'm, I'm kind of a believer in American exceptionalism but, but not here because uh, we had terrorists and people that fought terrorists can you talk a little about the tradition of American terrorism
1: yeah this is something that um, uh, every time I go over this with my students it still astounds me that, um, that, that the horrors that, uh, that this involves confronting every country has skeletons in their closet um, that they don't want to really reveal or deal with uh, and I, in the American case until quite recently, and by that I mean the scholarship is no more than a decade and a half old. The Ku Klux Klan was not referred to as a terrorist organization. Uh, It's a very recent phenomenon. And the statistics on um, lynching, which was never legal in the sense that there was a law saying uh, we should lynch, um, or that African Americans are to be put to death in some kind of genocidal manner. None of that, of course, ever existed. But the society was structured in such a way that It was as though it were. Mm -hmm. So the Black Codes, as they were called, uh, for the Civil War, which emerged uh, into Jim Crow laws, um, in fact, throughout the South, uh, are examples of what... uh, There's one small comparison here. The only other example of this that I know are the Russian pogroms, um, but they were all conducted uh, within a much more condensed period of time and with far fewer victims. The story in the United States is that over the course of... Almost a century um, in terms of an intensity, something like uh, well, the, the scholars are still counting the numbers approaching 8,000 African Americans who were publicly in broad daylight put to death in some of the most violent manners with crowds of people surrounding them children, uh, mothers with barbecue baskets, and they all went to somebody's mm-hmm. house afterwards and celebrated. Postcards were sent to relatives who couldn't make it as though they'd missed a rock concert. Sometimes they took pieces of skin and hair from the victims and sent it as mementos for those who couldn't be there. I mean, this is a kind of uh, terrorism that is just unbelievable to be black in the United States uh, in certain areas of the country until at least the end of the Second World War uh, was to live in a reign of terror. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I mean, and also you should, I I think it bears mentioning uh, uh, atrocities committed by uh, uh, the Union side in the Civil War. Uh, there were t- attempts, I think, to cow the, the southern population, and Sherman's March being the sort of, I think, most obvious of them, uh, where the so, so soldiers were given, uh, uh, where they were given to know that it was all right to do basically as they pleased. No doubt, yeah. no doubt, and that's certainly true. Um, I, I should add, one of the things
1: I don't deal with in detail are, are wars, and I, as I explained in the beginning of the book, or tried to, uh, I think wars are violent by nature, and yeah. there's uh, acts of terrorism going on all the time, and we're rewarded and paid better if we, uh, if we do it better. So I, I don't think we learn anything about terrorism by studying a war, because it's, its violence is endemic mm-hmm. and inherent. Mm-hmm. But you're right what you say. That's yeah.
0: Impact. But I, but I, mean, I guess there's, there's, there are border cases, and you do mention one of them, and that is the, um, the treatment of the, uh, uh, the American Indians, and th- these are the Indians that had been removed from the East Coast, end up on the Plains, or the Plains Indians themselves. Uh, there are lots of of instances of uh, what we might call a demonstrative violence on the part of of the the occupying uh, uh, American forces that were an attempt, I think, to terrorize the the Native Americans into submission. No doubt, um, yeah. that's exactly uh,
1: what I was trying to show there too. And I think there's the, these are the two strongest cases. In the, in the case of African Americans, the, the political element, which is has to be there if it's to be considered terrorism, at least in my view. Uh, is the the threat of having uh, a black person who was once a slave um, become free and empowered with the vote. Uh, Mm -hmm. For a white person, this was just uh, unthinkable, and I think much of the violence is the attempt to quell that fear. In the case of uh, Native Americans, the the motivations are um, not quite the same thing, but the sense of... um, of distinctions, of hierarchies, of, of castes, of prejudice um, are are all built in. And the evidence, they hope too, is another example of what until recently was would not have been considered. In fact, many of my colleagues still uh, debate whether I'm right about even calling it terrorism, but um, I think the evidence is absolutely clear. People were driven out by force, by violence, against their will. Uh, and, and again, in uh, both cases, the African Americans and the Native Americans were. Uh, were themselves the victims of this combination of entangled terrorism that I'm talking about, where state and society, in this case, joined together against a common uh, object to um, make
0: violence acceptable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, there's more in the American context as well. And this is often forgotten, the American anarchists and um, sort of bomb-touring and things like this. Can you talk a little bit about them?
1: Yes, um, that's yeah, That's that's an important thread um, to keep in mind as well. Much of it has to do with um, prejudices against immigrants who um, were able to flood into this country throughout the 19th century because we had very few immigration laws at the time. Um, and one of the ironies of this country that it's supposed to be a melting pot, but boy, the way we have uh, as Americans looked at immigrants and still do to this day, you begin to wonder, in any case that 's all about um, uh, a very competitive economic um, fear on the part of some Americans that uh, their livelihoods would be threatened by uh, by the influx of, um, of immigrants from Europe, um, many of whom came with um, the same kind of radical notions uh, of socialism and anarchism um, that they had grown up with in Europe. There are, however, also very um, often forgotten examples of what should we call them? Native American—I don't mean Indian in this sense, but just native to the country—political mm-hmm. um, radical ideas that, um, in some cases, really are as close to anarchism as um, those ideas which came from Europe. All of these congeal really in the period after the—it's uh, it's really the Haymarket affair—that. Um, inaugurates uh, this, this fusion of, um, of violent events and prejudices and concerns about jobs, all of which come together at that point. And then there is, after all, um, a, a dedicated group of people who really feel that the United States government, along with all other governments, a, as because their governments um, are, are incapable of being just and have to be um, somehow sabotaged and, if necessary, overthrown. And that's what the uh, the anarchist movement, um, in its fantasies, uh, imagined could happen.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's a you know they're chased around by a government authority that's uh, basically tasked with uh, ferreting out uh, these sorts of organizations. And we have well, that's that. where the
1: Pinkertons come in. Yeah, <laughs> play. And, uh, there's another story that isn't told as often as we would like to. Um, well, as, as often as, as it should be. Uh, this is uh, essentially a. a a hired um, squad of, of killers um, who were able to for, for they were paid well by the way. By the way, the original Pinkerton uh, came from Ireland, uh, Alan Pinkerton, and uh, his son and grandson ran the organization all the way up to the McKinley administration. Hmm. And they, um, yeah, they they were well-paid for uh, essentially being hired assassins whenever there was a, uh, a, a, what mine owners found to be an anarchist threat or a labor union threat in general of either immigrants or political ideas that were too threatening. They were able to be called in, and um, they did their, their uh, murderous work.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about... Cold War-era terrorism. But before we do, there's one instance uh, that I, I just would find it enlightening to hear you talk about that I've always been a bit confused about, and that is the formation of the Israeli state and what looks to me like Israeli terrorism, uh, uh, that is by people who later became extraordinarily important in the Israeli state. Uh, did, is it proper to call these, this business in, in uh, the I guess it's 1946 to 1949, uh, is it proper to call what they did terrorism? I think so. Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, No, I think I think you're right. Uh, It's not a subject I know a whole lot about, but um, from what I do know and have looked into, uh, yes, there there was, in fact. um, I mean, this this, this constellation of forces comes together again. I mean, you have a a very um, it's a combination of how it was perceived and 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 what it actually did. But as as far as the British government, which was um, mandated to have control over Palestine after the um, the Great War, uh basically dictated who could enter and um, who could live and under what conditions mm-hmm. and could work where and so on. And yes, there were insurgent Jewish terrorist groups as as well as uh, Arab nationalist um, terrorist groups mm-hmm. well before the formation of the state. And some of those people, including Menachem Begin, um, became uh, prime ministers, if not um, yeah. officials in the Shimbeth, the Secret Service, and the military. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, that's the thing about terrorism, which is sort of unfortunate. Sometimes it works. Um, I, mean, I, don't I don't really think
1: it ever actually works. <laughs> okay. I think what happens
0: is that people become, um, when
1: they uh, look like they've succeeded in the sense that they've risen to political power, they then become caught up in that mm. world which has its own demands, and all political rulers eventually find this out, yeah. even the Stalin's and the Hitlers and the Pol Potts, um, that you, you you can't ever really accomplish the fantasies of, um, of elimination, in order to achieve the purity, and these are deliberately the yeah. religious terms I'm using, um, that
0: you imagine you can. Yeah, yeah, no, I, mean, I think that's generally right. I think that's right. Uh, yeah, and, I mean, many people don't meantime, know the Israeli state when uh, it was founded had, was was very sorry. utopian in essence. I mean, they they wanted to do all kinds of utopian things and. Uh, um, those fell away after a while, I guess I would say, and Israel became an ordinary nation-state. Um, not quite ordinary, but a nation-state <laughs> nonetheless uh, that acts like a nation-state. Right. Um, no, no utopian socialism or anything like that. So the uh, let's talk about Cold War era um, of uh, terrorism, and it took a particular form in mean, these insurgencies. I mean, they're very interesting in the sense that they aren't really designed... Well, I mean, ultimately, they're designed to overthrow governments, but uh, they... They really didn't have any hope of that, at least it, it, at least in the um, in the near term. They were just basically armed by the United States and the Soviet Union in order to cause a lot of trouble, and they did. Can you talk a little bit about those? Okay, so you're specifically referring to? Well, I'm specifically referring to, for example, the insur- with well, the Congo is one, South Africa is another. Uh, what used to be called Southwest Africa is one. Rhodesia is one, um, and then there are the various ones that begin as insurgencies in Southeast Asia and later become something more. Um, those are right. the ones I'm thinking about, yeah.
1: Yeah, so um, I think the emblematic story there, even though it's um, perhaps um, not one that one could pursue in, in all parts of the continent, but in terms of this imperial colonial project, uh, which of course begins well back into the 19th century, the Congo, um, Congo Free State, as it was mistakenly called, uh, is, is maybe the best example. Again, South Africa is a little bit different, um we can talk about that too, but it's a, it, it's a different kind of story uh, in the sense that what emerged there uh, lasted much longer than um, the kinds of controls using political violence from above that was the case in the rest of Africa. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's quite complicated, but the, you know, the thing I guess I would focus on just to make some sense of the story is um, Leopold of Belgium, who created a state that was 35 times larger than the country that he ruled over in Europe, and exercised um, authority that was so brutal. Um, Adam Hochschild's book, uh, King Leopold's Ghost, is, mm-hmm. is the best thing to still read, I think, on that story. So, you know, the, the problem here is, is, if anything, the absence of insurgency. What, this is what people often say. Africans didn't fight back. They didn't have, uh, there was no ANC that one finds in the rest of Africa, uh, for example, um, until Algeria. Yeah, Algeria is another case I should have mentioned. Yeah, you have to look at, I think, each case individually because, you know, they all work their own trajectories.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess the point I'm making is, is that now the United States and the Soviet Union are interested in supporting either the people in power or people that want to throw the people in power out of power. Right, those latter being insurgents. So uh, w- they're effectively funding terrorist organizations for their own ends. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and so you see that, an explosion of
1: terrorism. Really. I see your point, yeah. yes. Quite right. Um, I don't think much of, yeah, the, the Cold War era terrorism could not have taken place without the support of um, the, the choice that was offered in international relations between joining um, the alleged free world um, or uh, the Soviet bloc Mm -hmm. That's right. So every country, uh, or to put it in other terms, it was very difficult for any country to survive uh, in the aftermath of the overthrow of the um, the 19th century colonial currents and regimes uh, without involving oneself with one side or the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was too much to gain by joining. Um, You could become a dictator and have a free ticket for expenses of just name your own price. And yes, authoritarian rulers are, are established all across the african continent um, uh, behold neither Moscow or to washington mm-hmm. the patrice Mumba story in Congo there too yeah. is another one that's a um a very interesting one because it shows the role of in this case um all these powers um, the CIA of course was responsible ultimately for lomumba's assassination, right. but um Soviet agents were well at work um, uh, to, to remove their own candidates.
0: Right. So far from a, a, a war on terror, I guess from 1948, roughly, I'm thinking of Greece in particular, that's why I picked that date, I think 1948, uh, to um, m- basically quite recently, we didn't have a war on terror. We were actually um, uh, supporting terrorists in various circles. Right. That's yeah. right. Uh-huh. And, well, and, you uh, know, we, we kind of were, we were saying, well, these people are freedom fighters. Um, and in some cases, right. they, I'm not saying they weren't, but in many cases they were. Uh, they were so weak that they couldn't actually fight anyone in the field, and there was no one to fight in the field, so they were essentially terrorists.
1: Well, the Afghanistan story, of course, is yeah. a classic there. Yeah, uh, exactly. Where we supported the Mujahideen at the time, uh, including Bin Laden.
0: Yeah, and so we're arming these people. The Soviets are arming them, and we're arming them, and they right. get armed in the teeth. Another really interesting episode, and actually, there's a um, there's a great German movie about this. Actually, there are a couple good German movies about this, and that is terrorism in in Western Europe in the 1960s. Uh, One of the movies is just called Carlos, and it's about Carlos the Jackal. Yes. And then the other movie is called the Bader-Meinhof Complex. I'd recommend those. to They're really both terrific movies. You're right. They are. And and these are very interesting to me because they were sort of homegrown uh, terrorist organizations. They didn't receive support, as far as I know, from the Soviets. They were leftist in nature, um, or one of them. In the case of Carlos, uh, they were pro-Palestinian in nature, um, can you talk a little bit about those? Those sort of harken back to the nineteenth century to me.
1: The um, yeah, again, these are, are different stories. Um, Carlos, in fact, was uh, was was um, he, he was well bankrolled uh, by a number of uh, c- countries or, or governments and agencies of, of various sorts, depending upon what um, hit he was he was making. Uh, and I think the. Um, There, I haven't looked at the documents, so I can't speak too thoroughly about Mm -hmm. this. But I'm sure the KGB and the CIA were involved. Uh, I I can't imagine how they they could possibly not be. The bottom of my whole story um, is: is, we know much more about that. And one of the things that uh, I think is often overlooked in that tale is that they had published in their various uh, underground um, sources, which were admittedly restricted in terms of who could possibly have read them but the, the, um, the challenge to, to one's belief system was with the, the, the real point. They revealed that there were huge numbers of Nazis um, from the Second World War who mm-hmm. were still prominent in the Bonn government and they never not only had they not been brought to trial but in fact that they were elected to power and appointed yeah. to power. Uh, this was refused. Um, and it was just an unacceptable point of view. Most of it turned out to be the case um, once all of this became revealed. And um, Bader Meinhof, uh, it's a complicated story, and you're right that the movie is really a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was composed of a whole range of of complex uh, forces at work, and and the people themselves cannot be even lumped into one category because Bader and Meinhof themselves alone are such
0: varied people. But you know, I mean, it's, it's one of these instances where you know the, the, the first time it's strategy, and the second time it's farce. That the Bodenmannhaf the, the King, I mean, they lived in their own little sort of fantastic world, where like blowing yeah, up but, a department again, store so was going to cause so the, the police the agents revolution. who
1: were hounding them and repressing them and shooting them.
0: Yeah, right, right. Well, this even has you know, there's a little bit of this in the American soil as well, and um, I'm thinking of two instances that I'd like to hear what you, you have to say about. One is the, uh, um, well, let's do it in chronological order. One is the Black Panther Party. Uh, mm-hmm. Which basically didn't accept the legitimacy of the government of the United States, and and um, was going to—I uh, don't know if they did—but was going to set out to, to assassinate politicians. And the other is the uh, the Weather Underground, with our friends Bill Ayers and uh, Bernadine Dorn, who mm-hmm. you occasionally still hear in the news about them. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about those? They're very different, yeah, obviously, they, but yeah. they
1: are very different. Um, and and uh, the, the back, the, well the Buckhannon story—and there's some really there's a really good documentary. Um, about the Black Panthers uh, done by a Swedish journalist team that was um, finally uh, put together just, I think, a year or so ago. Uh, one of the things that, um, that they found out, and this is uh, not any secret information either, it was well known for people who investigated the story, uh, the Black Panthers began as essentially a, a soup kitchen for the poor people mm-hmm. um, of, of Oakland, most of whom were African Americans. Uh, And the story of their evolution into um, becoming essentially a a gang involved in uh, violent shootouts, including the killing, the assassination, really, of the uh, superintendent of schools of Oakland, um, has to be tied together with um, all of the infiltration by the government, um, the setups that police often provoke the Black Panthers into situations where they would be then forced to fire on the police. The police could then either arrest them or kill them. The story of the murder of Fred Hampton uh, in Chicago, the head of a Black Panther party there, where they <laughs> they raided his house at 2 o'clock in the morning and shot him in his bed and then came out smiling. The police did uh, the following morning, saying that they had been under attack. And this was a believed story at the time. That's the way it was understood, that a, a, a terrible threat to American politics had been finally removed, just as we often feel today with the removal of some Al-Qaeda figure. Who, um, of course, is going to be replaced by somebody else, as was the case with Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Weather Underground Fr- was a largely white organization, which um, acted in the name of uh, of, of African Americans and, and often uh, Bernardine Dorn, its leader, often referred to uh, specifically to Black Panther um, Party uh, officials themselves. But the two were completely separated and. Um, uh, had very little to do with each other and had, and had very different agendas for that yeah. matter.
0: Yeah. I mean, the genesis of them is very interesting. They are linked in an interesting sort of way because uh, Doran and Ayers were, um, I think, uh, reasonably wealthy white middle class kids. Right. Uh, who had decided that uh, the United States government was illegitimate and they were going to make war on it. Uh, they didn't do a very good job of it. Clearly, but again, the second time it seems to me a sort of farce because they are a pale reflection. Thank God of these 19th century Russian um, Russian terrorists. Uh, it is very much. Um,
1: this is uh, another thing I often uh, talk to my students about. I mean, this, this, the story of the whole evolution from peaceful civil rights to the violence of the uh, late 1970s, all the way up through the 1970s, rather. Um, yes, especially with the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers, is in many ways. Uh, a similar kind of trajectory that the Russians went through back in the 19th century um, from the sort of movement to the people to uplift the peasants in the countryside uh, peacefully, um, which was then repressed by the police, yeah. and then they turned to violence. Right, uh, the right. same justifications, by the way, come out at the trials. Um, the Russians, who said we had no choice, uh, you have to wonder sometimes whether they thought the government should just let them run wild in the countryside. Uh, the same arguments were made in this country. Uh, how can the police just don't, you know, let us organize what we want to and um, sabotage what we wish to and so on. So these are the fantasies. But but again, it's the, you know, it's both sides. Mm -hmm. The provocations by the government, by the secret services um, in all of these cases um, where agents are working inside these organizations who have studied them. They even have... (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, there's less government uh, evidence than there is insurgent evidence. But from what I have found, and most of it is is in the book, uh, there's remarkable similarities. Military manuals sometimes um, are almost the same as um, insurgent manuals in terms of employing violence to Mm -hmm. achieve political objectives. Mm -hmm. It's quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's uh, just very briefly try to put, um, I guess, what is the... uh, there are lots of there's lots of terrorism in the world today, but the kind that most Americans are going to know about, or people in the world are going to know about, is the, uh, Islamic. I, I don't know what to call it. Uh, um, <laughs> Al Qaeda based terrorism or Islamic. Ter- I don't know what to call it. But anyway, the uh-huh. kind of terrorism that led to uh, to um, the World Trade Center bombing and then 911. Um, how, how do we put that in historical context? Is there anything new there? Uh, let's see. I think the uh, it's a complicated story, and I do try to deal with it a little
1: bit in that last chapter. Uh, the you have to find a place to start, and it's not easy to do because it's been an ongoing story for some time. One of the things that makes sense to me is to look at the, um, the, the Iran story, that is to say the 1953 CIA overthrow of the Mossadegh regime, which was a democratically elected government, much like the situation with Allende and Chile. Um, Where we, by the way, the Ayatollah Khomeini was on our payroll, that is to say the CIA's payroll. Mm -hmm. I discovered that also when I was looking into that 1953 episode. He was a theological student at the time and was paid to join the um, street uh, demonstrations against um, Mossadegh. Anyway, that is at least, uh, as far as I can tell, one of the first... um, Emergences of, um, and then of course, the government that um, comes into power in Iran at that point is uh, an American-sponsored uh, repressive government led by the Shah, uh, whose regime is, is uh, a monarchy essentially recreated by the um, uh, by, by the free world, by the especially by the United States. And that uh, resentment against the United States uh, begins to build there. That's that's one pocket uh, of, of being able to trace what becomes Islamic militant. Terrorism, um, at least in 9 11. Another is the Palestinian Israeli conflict, which is um, still going on uh, after more than 100 years. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, you have to put those currents together uh, and see the antagonisms at work, it seems to me, to understand how you get to such a horrifying event as 9 11. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that there really isn't, I'll just lay my cards on the table, that there really isn't terribly much. New here, it's more sophisticated, perhaps. I don't even know that it's more sophisticated. Um, well, the weaponry is much more damaging, that's for sure. Yeah, they. Yeah, I, I suppose that that is true. Uh, although I kind of see what happened on nine eleven as a bit of an anomaly, because most of the weapons that they use kill, you know, between, you know, two or three and forty or fifty people. Most of yeah the, yeah and th- those are consistent with terrorist activities in the late nineteenth century the basic bomb throwers by the
1: way um the, just as a, a another note here um while you're while you're on that subject um i, I found this out from a, at a conference with a state department official who um it to me like he really knew what he was talking about with information from the field and that is that no one was more surprised by the collapse of both of those towers and, and the fact that three thousand people died than Bin Laden himself yeah i think that's right
0: yeah I, I really do consider that something of an anomaly and, he had um, no idea it was going to be that secret. yeah that's right so let me ask one final question then um sure. the war on terror uh is it winnable um well first of all it's a war on terror
1: roman numeral two you know like the super bowl yeah like the- right sure because um, there was a war on anarchism at the end of the yes, 19th century, right. uh, mm-hmm. which was very similar um, uh, in, in structure to, to that which we are living through today. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a new book coming out by a colleague of mine, which will make all that,
0: uh, mm-hmm. that
1: whole story much more readable than we've, um, uh, with more information than we've had before. But as far as the current one, um, winnable is not the word I guess I would use. the, the, the the terrorism from below will not succeed. Governments are far too powerful um and, and this will uh will morph into something else it isn't It isn't a question of who's going to win, just as the Cold War looks like uh the way the dewsbury cartoon had it. you know there's going to be a pickette parade because we won it morphs into <laughs> yet another form of of political violence and insurgency combat because the the root problems remain yeah. that is political legitimacy is questioned. The, the, the problems of injustice go on. Um, the grinding poverty continues. The issues that really should be dealt with by world leaders don't get dealt with. Mm-hmm. So this will end, and it will morph into something else. That's the way I would, if I had to predict
0: anything, would happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think illegitimacy, this notion of illegitimacy of a certain sort, sort of generates terrorism, and it, and it helps mm-hmm. support uh, terrorist organizations. And I don't think that there's any way that a democratic government – can act that will stifle these voices that call the government itself illegitimate it, it really breeds this kind of thing um modern liberal governments are are always being criticized by their citizens and by the world community and there's going to be a certain section of those uh critics that are um I guess, going to take matters into their own hands. And they certainly have the means to do so now. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so we can expect more of this. I, oh, yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't see how it's possible that we wouldn't expect. I
1: don't think expect people would um, use words instead of
0: deeds. Yeah, no, you're right. Use your words. That's what I always tell my daughter and son. Um, <laughs> <laughs> use your words. Right. So anyway, uh, Martin, thank you so much for being on the show today. We've taken up a lot of your time. Um, allow me to uh, close the interview by asking you our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: Well, what I'm working on now, um, there are two things um, that I'm uh, trying to develop. One is, uh, which is fairly, um, I, I would say, has, has moved along to a point where I can actually talk about it with some intelligence, and that is uh, the role that terrorism um, has played in literature. Uh, I've got a whole raft of um, very prominent um, novels and some very unprominent novels. Uh, one of the people I discovered who isn't as well known as I think he ought to have been is Jack London, who, uh, the American author, who wrote two amazing novels about terrorism hmm. at the beginning of the
0: century. I didn't know that. Century. Yeah, no, very yeah. few people
1: do. One's called the Assassination Bureau, just for the reference. Uh, it's really worth reading. It's chilling, mm-hmm. but fascinating. It uh, ties together a whole lot of the events of um, the uh, European and American experiences of the uh, uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's Dostoevsky's Devils yeah. and uh, many others that you know, uh, Conrad's um, Under Western Eyes and so on. Mm-hmm. So there's... Um, there's a whole. I'm trying to do a comparative analysis of literature uh, uh, that exam that focuses on terrorism, both from the perspective of the state. Gorky's Mother is another example of that, uh, and the more okay, more prominent uh, versions of terrorism from below, uh, in the insurgencies, as I refer to them. And I think these have had an impact. And what the, the harder part of what I'm working on in that project is to to frame the impact um, that those um, novels had uh, on actual terrorism. So that's one thing. The other which is a more distant project that I have only just begun to think about, uh, is the opposite of all that I've been concerned with here, and that is the role of nonviolent resistance, Mm. um, which I think is um, really a much more satisfying way to go about political opposition. Mm,
0: Yeah, no, that would be more interesting. I can definitely take a break from all those bombs and guns. (laughs) That's true. Well, good luck on those projects. Um, uh, Let me thank everyone for listening in today to New Books in History. We've been talking with Martin Miller about his book, The Foundations of Modern Terrorism, State, Society, and the Dynamics of Political Violence. Um, Martin, I want to say thank you very much for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, Marshall. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.